Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. It's Bullseye. Peter Sarsgaard is an actor. He's been in over 60 different roles. Films like Shattered Glass, The Magnificent Seven, The Green Lantern. And if there's a type that Peter plays, it's guys who are confident and cool and composed. Or I guess guys that should be competent, cool and composed, but in some small way are not. Like maybe it's a CIA researcher whose personal life unravels when he's been secretly dosed with LSD like an Errol Morris's Wormwood, or a charming young guy who turns out to be something of a confidence man, like in the Academy Award-nominated An Education, or like in his latest film, The Sound of Silence. In it, he plays Peter Lucien. Peter is a New York City house tuner, meaning that he is kind of like a sort of scientific guy who goes around studying ambient sound. He lives in New York, one of the loudest, busiest cities in the world, and he has made a business out of creating harmony, like literal harmony, finding ways to match the ambient sounds in everyone's apartment. Like, say you're feeling tired and down, and the hum of traffic outside your apartment sounds like an A on the piano. Why not buy a microwave that cooks in a C-sharp and add a toaster that hums in E. It's a beautiful, quiet, strange film, and Peter Sarsgaard is captivating in it. Here's a clip with him in action. He's been contacted by a woman named Ellen Chasen, played by Rashida Jones. Ellen is depressed, and she's having trouble sleeping in her home. And Peter thinks he knows the cause. I noticed your toaster produces an E flat. And your refrigerator hums at a clear G. Now the foundation note is a subtle but convincing C throughout the entire apartment. Here. Hear that? Hmm? The mechanical sound? Or uh perhaps it's it's wind patterns on the east side? It's remarkably consistent. Anyway, new toaster should solve your problems. Why do you think it's that simple? And technically, refrigerator's a perfect fifth, and the minor third created by your toaster, combined with the tonic from your neighborhood, and uh, you've got a depression. Peter Sarsgaard, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. <laughs> Thank you. Peter, I I work in public radio, and so I have gone to conferences where sound people talk about the power of sound. Oh, yeah. And it's, I'm going to be frank, it's not my thing. (laughs) 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 I hope I'm not admitting I'm in the wrong business, but, uh, and I wish them all the best. But I wonder if you had ever listened in the way that your character in this film listens before playing this character required you to do so? Oh, not the way that my character does. No, not at all. I mean, you know, obviously this isn't a documentary or, a, or really a drama. Um, 
it's kind of got its own little tone going on. That said, I do think that a variety of things influence our feelings and behavior that are some of them unseen. And I guess I would include the sound environment that you're in. I mean, being uh, in a church with organ music playing makes you feel spiritual for some reason, right? And I think being in nature, the sounds, you know, without human input make people feel a certain way. But as far as like a certain frequency, making like a 440A, making you feel enlightened, um, I'm not so sure about that. What are the quietest environments that you ever spend time in? I mean, you're talking to me from New York where you live, and that's not a particularly quiet place. I would say it might be where I am right now in this sound studio. (laughs) Before you came on, I was sitting here and I was actually thinking, wow, I I think this is probably pretty good for my brain to not talk or listen to anything other than maybe my own heartbeat for a little while. (laughs) You know, they test speakers and stuff in those totally acoustically dead rooms where there's no sound can come in and uh, so all you experience is the sound that's being generated in that space. Yeah. Uh, and frankly, when I think about that, I find it terrifying. Yeah. It's like a sensory deprivation chamber. Not many people <laughs> like that. <laughs> I'm so grateful that you agreed because one time I asked Neil deGrasse Tyson, the astrophysicist, if he ever got freaked out thinking about how space is infinite <laughs> and he made fun of me. That's <laughs> like, come on, dude. <laughs> I opened up to you, Neil deGrasse Tyson. I think the idea in the movie is that, you know, we live in this time and maybe this has been true of other times. I can only speak to the time in which I live, but where a lot of people I know are looking for sort of outside influences that are affecting their behavior. They'll say, I have anxiety because of, you know, one that is real, for example, like black mold. They'll say, you know, the black mold is making me depressed and I need to get out of this environment. My environment is toxic. I live in a toxic world and the toxins are affecting my behavior in everyday life. And so that idea is one that I think feels, makes the movie feel very current to me and very much about something more than just, you know, whether or not a B flat makes you feel sad. You know, minor keys make me feel, you know, people always say minor keys are sad. I I think they're more like, um, uh, more inspirational to me than a major key, but you know, we all have a different idea of what's going on. But that idea that, that, yeah, it's something out there that is making me feel this way. Do you have anything in your life, it might be acting, that you are as focused on or single-minded while you're doing as your character in this film is as when he is recording and listening? I have a small orchard. And I would say when I'm... Uh, been up there for a while with, you know, I have like apple trees and pear trees and number of plums and other things, but mostly apple. And uh, Is this in, in New York City or, or Vermont, elsewhere? Vermont. And I'm always thinking in New York City. I have a small orchard in New York City. I'm the well, wealthiest person here. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in Green Lantern? Yeah. I yeah. don't know how that pays. No. no. 
I uh, I really do. Everything relates to them. You know, you make. Uh, I'll think, oh, the wind's blowing. Well, that's good, and that way there won't be as high a spore count for fungal stuff. You know, or um, I'll think about when it's rained and. I'll think, look at the ground and see a mushroom and think, oh, that's cool. All the trees are talking to each other. You know, everything has, everything I see, hear, or feel has something to do with that apple tree. So that's sort of the way he is in this, is he's like walking around and everything has something to do with his bit of, you know, quote unquote, science. I was reading an article about you and your wife's home, which you had put on the market, maybe I think it was earlier this year, in People magazine, or maybe it was an architectural digest. And there was this part about you having a Meyer lemon tree in your backyard. Yeah. And I live in Los Angeles where, you know, lemons will grow on top of your car if you don't get your car washed enough. <laughs> but um, but in New York, that's like uh, that's like a really that's like a really special thing if you actually get a lemon out of it. Yeah. Well, the the wall was south facing. You know, we're approaching zone eight here. You know, you have global. Uh, let me think of what Greta Thunberg calls it, because I, I don't. I, I sh- shouldn't call it climate change anymore. I think we're supposed to call it the climate emergency. Um, is has changed the climate zones. I mean, I I grow persimmons. Uh, my friend grows kiwi in Vermont, so it's you can grow virtually anything. I mean, not bananas yet, but you know, soon. Are there are there other things in your life that you bring that level of focus to? I, I heard that you're also an ultra distance runner as a hobby. I do run. Yeah, I, I uh, had to take a lot of this last year off because I got pertussis, which, uh, you know, adult. I'm fully vaccinated, but it turns out the vaccine's only 85% effective. Um, mm. So I, I'm, that's the hundred day cough. So I missed a lot, but yeah, I'm I'm very focused on that. I think also with music is something that I've always been interested in and wished. I think there's a part of me that's always wished that I was a musician instead of an actor. Since as an actor, you can't really act at home by yourself. I mean, you don't. <laughs> People think you walk around the house practicing lines and stuff. I mean, I say them in my head. I don't ever speak them until I show up. And with music, you know, I could be doing it every day if I felt like it. It's the very troubling thing about acting. You try not to get into it too much because um, because other people need to give you the opportunity to do it. And if you're particular, like me, then, you know, you don't do it every time somebody asks you and then you're not doing it as often as you'd like. So you have to come up with your your other things that you're interested in, you know. When you started acting, and you didn't really start acting until college, uh, did you find that you were able to do it at the beginning? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't ever even think about doing it, and then I was uh, invited by someone to be in an acting class because I wasn't able to play sports anymore because I'd had an injury. And, when um, you say invited by someone, Karen Schmulen, a, a Jewish woman from Texas, that said you're going to have a lot of free time on your hands, and you're probably going to be pretty bummed out when you come take this acting class with me. And I, I did. And then the first time I ever tried it, I felt like I knew how to do it. 
I mean, I, I didn't, uh, I didn't, you know, and I've learned a lot since then, but I had a facility to do something that I'd never imagined doing. It was a strange feeling. You know, I was thinking about this film and how important sound is in the film. Yeah. And it's a spectacularly, beautifully sound designed film. Yeah. And it occurred to me, I was like, well, gee whiz, none of that is happening on the set. There, like this is this is a film where the the third central driving force, besides the the two main characters of the movie, is uh, the way things sound, and you know, often in often in films, you're not even hearing the actual words coming out of the person on screen's mouth as they came out. It's like the, something went back and did ADR and recorded a, recorded it slightly differently to match the shape of the lips, Yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. Much less the sounds of the environment. Those are always, almost always, coming from elsewhere. But he always but left th- so much room for it. I mean, he knew, I knew that it was coming. And right. um, he would let things roll for a really long time in and around scenes. And I just, I could feel it coming. You know, and I had my own stuff in my head that doesn't isn't the same as what's in the film, but it's not really necessary that it be the same. We actually he would always try to play classical music and stuff when we were filming, and um, I had my own I had my own thing in my head, <laughs> and I think I had like cicadas. When it's that quiet, aren't you desperately? Don't you feel like a desperate need in the pit of your stomach to? fill the silence with something or to break the silence with something? No, because I'm not a performer. (laughs) You know, I think for me, you know, I had a grandparent who, you know, many people thought of him as kind of reticent and um, difficult to know. And I always found him the opposite. I always found him incredibly open. And it was, uh, he would never fill in with small talk he just let it be and it might be uncomfortable for somebody but I guess I find that more comforting I I, I think we do a lot of talking and making sound in our everyday lives to obfuscate or to distract or to whatever your agenda is or because you're feeling uncomfortable or anxious and to just let the silence or lack of talking anyway live takes takes guts, but I would say it's ultimately rewarding. I interviewed this musician once named Betty Davis, and she was and is a sort of legend of, of funk music. Mm-hmm. But in the late 1970s, she quit the music business and quit the entertainment industry entirely and moved back home to Pittsburgh where she was from and just had an entirely different life and had not done, she did no interviews and no anything. Mm. And this was previously, she had been married to, she got that surname from Miles Davis, her ex-husband. Like she was, (laughs) she was really flying high for a while show business wise. And so I called her to interview her and I knew that she had not talked. She had like not even cashed her ASCAP checks 
<laughs> until some Swedish fan of hers tracked her down in the suburbs of Pittsburgh and said, you know, ASCAP owes you $300,000. <laughs> and so I knew that she was a very quiet person. And when I interviewed her, I found her to be exceedingly polite. But she would answer with a word or two or six, the absolute minimum number of words necessary to answer every one of my questions. And I knew from having read a thing that, you know, Terry Gross or Ira Glass or some other hero of mine had said that if I was just quiet long enough, she would say more. And my most vivid memory of talking to this woman whose music I love so much and is a really remarkable woman is how terrifying it was for her to finish a sentence and me not to reply. <laughs> huh. Yeah. I just saw the Miles Davis documentary done at Film Forum. And yeah, he had that too, didn't he? I mean, they must have been quite a quiet <laughs> couple. Yeah. Um, I mean, those. I would say for me... I think that's one reason I like a lot of my heroes in my life were not actors but were musicians because they do so much communicating just non-verbally. I mean, that's, you know, you watch Miles Davis in that documentary and there's a grunt or two here and there and then he says so much when he finally plays. You know, it's unbelievable. He wasn't a super chill dude. He was not. He liked to box. <laughs> I love that thing. Alan Arkin once told me, I guess who knew him, said, uh, said, aren't you worried about boxing? It's going to like mess up your armature if somebody hits you. And he goes, oh, nobody ever hit me. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> you're Miles Davis. You can do anything. <laughs> what, a, what a genius, my God. I've, I've really always wanted to be a musician. I actually... Um, one story I've told a couple of times in relationship to this movie, just because it relates to it a bit, is a friend of mine, Jordan McLean, who plays with this group, Antibalas, um, was playing with Ornette Coleman at his place here in the city. It, just at night, he would show up, and Ornette had kind of an open-door policy. And um, he invited me over one night. He said, you want to come over and meet Ornette? And he was like, I mean, it's probably one of my favorite artists, you know. And uh, I showed up, and I was sitting at the drum kit while we were all talking, and I asked to see his Pulitzer Prize, and he went up, and he couldn't find it. And he turned back around, and he looked at me like he just realized I was sitting at the drum kit, and he went, oh, great, count off, let's, let's play. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, no, 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 I, I don't play the drums. And he goes, you know, that doesn't make any sense or matter. And he went, count off. And so I played drums with Ornette Coleman for like two hours, and afterwards, he started talking about how, you know, human beings, whether we, you know, think of ourselves this way or not, in the animal kingdom are uniquely gifted at music. So even those of us who don't think we are musical are, are really extraordinarily musical when you look at us in the grand scheme of things. I mean, you know, even being able to appreciate music is a sign of our musicality and what 
what is playing all the time, what is happening all the time anywhere you go, whether it be in a grocery store, Muzak to make you feel better, put you in a certain mood, go into a church used to elevate you and make you feel spiritual. I mean, it's just used in such a variety of contexts to alter our moods that like the idea of this movie that, you know, like a B flat makes you feel a certain way. And if it's not jiving with that G sharp or whatever, might be funny. But we all know that, you know, there's a kind of ecstasy that can happen with music. There's a kind of uh, access to sorrow that can happen with music. It's It makes things emotionally available to you. We have more with Peter Sarsgaard after a break. Still to come, stories about Tom Cruise. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor ZipRecruiter. Hiring can be a slow process. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee, so he went to ZipRecruiter, posted his job, and found the right person in just a few days. Find out why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com bullseye, B-U-L-L-S-E-Y-E. All right, Professor McConaughey, are you ready for an Ask Me Another Challenge? All right, all right, all right. Hey, everyone, it's Ophira Eisenberg. In this episode, we talk with actor Matthew McConaughey. Listen to NPR's Ask Me Another, the answer to life's funnier questions. Listen, I'm a hotshot Hollywood movie producer. You have until I finish my glass of kombucha to pitch me your idea. Go. All right, it's called Who Shot Ya, a movie podcast that isn't just a bunch of straight white dudes. I'm Ify Whitey the new host of the show and a certified BBN. BBN? Buff black nerd. I'm Alonzo Duralde, an elderly gay and legit film critic who wrote a book on Christmas movies. I'm Drea Clark, a loud white lady from Minnesota. Each week, we talk about a new movie in theaters and all the important issues going on in the film industry. It's like Guess Who's Coming to Dinner meets Cruising. And if it helps seal the deal, I can flex my muscles while we record each episode. I'm sorry, this is a podcast? I'm a movie producer. How did you get in here? Iffy, quick, start flexing. Bicep, lats, chest. Who shot you? Dropping every Friday on MaximumFun.org or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is actor Peter Sarsgaard. You've seen him in An Education, Blue Jasmine, Black Mass, and many more. His new film, The Sound of Silence, is out now. Let's hear uh, another scene from... The Sound of Silence, which is my guest Peter Sarsgaard's new film. And uh, in it, he plays a guy who tunes people's living environments, sonically recognize the sounds that surround them and adjusts them to uh, improve their overall well-being. And so in this clip, uh, uh, Peter, the, the character is upset that the work that he's doing isn't being taken seriously and that it's being commercialized. And so he asks his mentor, Robert Fineway, who's played by Austin Pendleton, for advice. My data is supportive. Maybe they just can't comprehend it. It's all good feedback, Peter. I encourage my students to ask tough questions in the critique sessions. I think they're maybe caught up a little bit in your and your lack of formalities. And I'm close, though. And you understand the significance. Listen, I've read it. Don't rush yourself. This work takes time, years. Well, it's been years. 
This is a universal law that I've discovered and the scientific community needs to know about it. You know, there's a trap in science that I talk to my students about. One always sees exactly what one's looking for, not because it's there, but because one desperately wants to believe that it's there. You're saying my research is faulty? No. <laughs> I'm just cautioning you not to make it too personal, perhaps even obsessive. One must be obsessive in this field of ours, but we have to be careful of too much um, faith. It's interesting to me because you have these uh, avocations in your life that are all, no matter how hard one would try to uh, systemicize them or scientificize them, they're all ultimately kind of ad hoc. You know, like there's no way to act. No. Um, besides, you know, <laughs> doing your best. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's no there's no answer to any of these. Just as there's no answer to exactly what you're supposed to do about the spores when you're growing apples on your apple tree. No. No, I like that, you know. I I'm um my mother's a microbiologist, you know. And uh we had a microscope in our house when I was a kid and I used to go and get pond water and all kind of other things and look at them under there and you know it always seemed more like a story to me than anything else and I never wrote anything down kept track of what I was looking at or was much interested in naming of things my mother is also really into bird watching I was always way more into like the story like lecking you know which is a peculiar bird activity where all the females end up having sex with one of the males, even though, like, 20 of them are sitting there. Um, you know, it's the same male that's impregnating all of them. I look at pigeons and always remember that. But my mom, you know, wanted to know the names and all that stuff, and I just have always been less interested in that. Some people got to catch them all, is my understanding. <laughs> yeah. I That part of bird watching of, like, keeping track of what you've seen and, and everything and reporting it to Cornell, I just can't. I can't get down with. But, uh, you know, one of my major... That sound you just heard was 20,000 public radio listeners angrily snapping their radios off. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Now it's just you and I. You were an athlete before you were an actor. You played soccer into college. Yeah. Um, and eventually quit, I guess, because of some combination of getting too many concussions and no longer being really great at it relative to your peers? Yeah, absolutely. I never, you know, I'm somebody who always really enjoyed the beauty of that game, and I still do. I think it is, it really is, to me, the beautiful game. It's so simple. I think one of the reasons it's so popular in the world is that you don't even need, even need a ball in a hoop or a ball, a hoop, and a hard surface to bounce it. All you need is a ball, and in some countries, they make them out of tape. And so... I like the simplicity of the game. That's just a ball that you can't touch with your hands and you try to put it in the goal. So, um, and when it's played beautifully, I really like it. Very often, at the, you know, even at, I was playing at pretty high level sometimes, it just wasn't satisfying in terms of what it looked like to me. I would think like we won, but it was ugly, you know? I wanted it to have a feeling like 
oh, the ball went there and back to here and then slid it through there and then he tapped it to that guy and then he scored instead of just like we just battered them into submission, which was frequently the case. So, Like the difference between watching the, the Warriors play basketball at their at their peak and watching like the great Bill Lambeer Detroit Pistons or something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I like, um, I actually really liked watching the women play. Um, one of the reasons why is I really felt like in that game, there was a lot of thought about the geometry of the game, letting the ball do the work, you know, and um, you could really see it more, you know. So, and I watched it with my daughters, which was really nice to see, you know, a female sport that everybody was tuning into. Are you uh, still passionate about soccer? Do you watch it? Every, I, I mean, all the time. You could ask me about any game that happened over the weekend and I'd know about it. I just watched all the Champions League games. I mean, I, I usually tape them, right? Because they come on at like, the European leagues obviously come on at two o'clock in the morning or something in the United States. Yeah, and like for some of them, I will watch what's called extended highlights because it's a long game. And I, I try not <laughs> yeah. to watch more than one full game a week because... <laughs> I've seen it, Peter. It doesn't mean anything to me. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I were walking down the street today and she actually said, I was telling her, you know, I have this project coming up that I'm interested in acting in, but sort of at the moment, my, my head is not totally into acting. Um, I finished a gig about a month ago. I'm in between jobs. And she said, uh, have you ever thought of doing other things besides acting? And I said, you know, I'd really like to be a commentator for soccer on any level. I'm just putting it out there in the world. I feel like I feel like Nick Hornby's got to have the hookup on that, right? Nick Hornby's Hornby. The, Hornby's the famousest soccer fan of all of England. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I do. Nick, when I go to uh, London, I Nick knows why I text him, but I'll text him because he's always got the the really good Arsenal tickets in that gorgeous stadium. So yeah, I've gone to see games with him. Are there things that you learned playing sports competitively that are useful to you as an actor? Oh yeah, it's it, very very similar in a lot of ways. I mean, it's. Um, you know, one of the things I'll say that gets in the way of both of them is a kind of star system, right? The need to have the guy on the team that's the one when we say, oh, you know, Barcelona is playing Juventus and they'll show a picture of Messi and a picture of Ronaldo and that's that defines it for us. And or when we go to see a movie, we'll say like, did you see that new Tom Hanks movie instead of saying the name of the director or anyone else who legitimately made the movie. And um, I think both things skew the way that we watch them. And even the way that we participate in them as actors or as athletes and the need to have a single person. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about soccer is that any team of, you know, 11 talented guys will beat a team of one Messi and you know, 10 okay guys. I mean, it's just a game of geometry. There's in space. And uh, the same thing is true with acting. You know, my favorite scenes as an actor, you look at like on the waterfront, you know, there's not one guy in the back seat of that car. You know, it's not just Marlon Brando. 
<laughs> so it's uh, the need, the way we focus on individuals like that in acting, I think really skews the story even of what we're watching. And, and I would say even before that, it skews the stories that people decide to make. We make stories where we need like the a certain type of hero that threads all the way through. Um, and I really prefer more of a, you know, I think that's why actors liked acting with Robert Altman. You know, who's the lead in Shortcuts? You know? <laughs> Speaking of movies like that, where one person being in it skews the whole thing in one's perception and you think of it as a vehicle for uh, that person, you were in an action comedy called Night and Day with Tom Cruise and Cameron Diaz. And vaguely familiar. In, yeah. In my in my job, I talk to f- uh, famous artists whose work I care about and, and who I admire, and I'm used to it. I've been doing it almost 20 years now. So it's not... I, I'm used to the idea that somebody who stars in a film or makes an incredible album or something is actually just a lady or a guy. Yeah. That's no longer seems foreign to me. However, Tom Cruise continues to feel foreign to me. Yeah. And I just kind of wonder what's that guy's deal to the extent that you know. Uh like what Well, what I'll tell is you a story like from a that human movie. being in the world. Yeah. yeah. Two stories from that movie. One is he discovered when we were in Sevilla uh that I was really into soccer or football, I guess over there. And um that I'd been going to all these Sevilla games. And he said, I'd like to go see a game. And I said, well, let's go. So we went to go see them play. And um, he was he was super into it and very, um, you know, it's different going with him. We had to go in like what felt like an armored vehicle and show up and there, you know, and going through the back way and sit up in a special booth and watch it from impossibly far away. And I remember at one point explaining offsides to him on a piece of paper and looking up and seeing that we were on the jumbotron together. And so this is a guy who can't even like have one second of his life that is in private. I don't, I think it becomes very difficult to not act like you're always in public. You know, so I couldn't tell you what he's like in private because even when I've hung out with him in what felt like more private circumstances, of course, his guard has got to be up on some level. And I mean, you're you're saying that as a famous person who is married to a famous person. Yeah, <laughs> you know but what I mean. Yeah. Like you're not Tom. I'm not. I'm saying it's just a different thing. Yeah, my the type of fame that I have is really great. I love it. I I walk down the street and the people that come up to me are coming up to me usually for a very personal reason. They'll say, like, I saw this movie and you in it and I like this about it or whatever or I hated this about it or whatever they want to say to me. But it's specific. You know, with Tom Cruise, they're pointing it's that guy. It's not it's not even a specific role. It's not it's it's just fame, you know. Right. And um, so. Yeah, a couple of times a day I get a certain type of attention. Most New Yorkers are circumspect unless they do have something to say to you that's specific. Um, And then, you you know, you get a table at the nice restaurant, which is good. But, um, you know, another story about Tom Cruise on that movie is he liked to stay after work to rehearse scenes. 
and he worked harder than anybody I know. Like I said, I for me, acting is something that feels best when it's really easy. You know, I just do it, and then I'm the first one that leaves work at the end of the day. Like the minute we're done, I don't even take off the makeup or anything. I just go into my trailer, change clothes, get in the car, go home, take a shower. You know, I'm I'm out of there. And he really he wants to stay and work. This is a guy who did a stunt on the movie that I did not know he was going to do when I was in the same frame and he's like running across the top of this building. You know, he's just like, uh, it's it's another level of anyone I've ever seen. And I actually quit drinking right after I worked with him. And uh, about three months later, he walked across a room seeing me and said, something's changed about you. Something really has changed about you. And I said, yeah. He was the first person, you know, who really noticed that I had quit. So he's also incredibly perceptive for a guy who's, you know, leading such a bubble-type life, you know. I mean, he has got those laser eyes. Yeah. I remember telling him at one point, I said, like, everybody loves to watch you run. I can't believe you haven't run in this movie. And then I swear the next day he was doing a running scene behind a, <laughs> behind a truck. <laughs> Everybody does like to watch him run. He's got like a, what is it? Like in the firm, you're just like, keep running. I love it. Yeah, it's really, there's a real like, uh, it. it's fluid, but not graceful. It's like purposeful. It's purposeful. It looks like he is going somewhere. I mean, yeah, not, not my jam. I can't do that. But, I mean, he also looks like that when he's uh, just standing still, though. <laughs> To be fair, yeah, yeah, yeah. He wouldn't be one of the greatest movie stars of the of movie history. I know. If it, he weren't amazing to look at, yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. But yeah, I mean, I've acted with so many. I mean, people have this very monolithic idea about who actors are and where they come from and that kind of thing. And it's just been for me, it's been a real opportunity to meet all kinds of different people. I mean, it is. People come for all kind of different reasons. I mean, they're the generic sort of I want to be famous things, but they don't last very long. You know, the ones who really stick around and that I've seen, you know, I've been acting for, I don't know, 25 years or something. And the people that I notice are still around always have very interesting, specific reasons for coming to it in the first place. Peter Sarsgaard, thank you so much for talking to me on Bullseye. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Peter Sarsgaard. His newest film, The Sound of Silence, is out now. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye produced at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where there are tire tracks in the grass, a long, straight, muddy line across the park. And uh, Kevin, my producer, saw a squirrel run down the tire track like it was a squirrel highway. He has written in my script, Life in the Fast Lane. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He has perhaps too much power on the program. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We get help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Thanks to Dan for sharing it with us. He's made a bunch of music that he made for uh, Bullseye available on Bandcamp. Uh, just search for DJW there. Uh, it's called like music for bullseye. It's pay what you want. 
Our theme song is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to them and Memphis Industries, their label, for letting us use it. Great song, great band. And before you go, Bullseye has been around forever and a day. I am bald now and didn't used to be. That means we have done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of interviews, including more than one with Linda Barry, who just won a MacArthur Fellowship, a genius grant. And I agree, she is a genius. Two of my favorite bullseye interviews in the history of the program. So go listen to Linda because she is an amazing human being. All our interviews are available on our website or in your favorite podcast app. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Both of the interviews from this week's program are on YouTube if you want to share them. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne. You can keep up with the show on any of those platforms. We're also these days on NPR.org. You can go find them at NPR.org if you want to. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.